Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host, Cherie Harder. This month, we begin a special series on our podcast called Discovery and Doxology, Conversations on Faith and Science. In partnership with the Templeton Religion Trust, BioLogos, and Church of the Advent, we're releasing four conversations between scientists, philosophers, and theologians to help us explore the relationship between science and faith. It's our aim to introduce you to some of the brightest scientific and theological lights of our own generation and to help you think wisely and well. The conversations have been pre-recorded and edited for clarity and length, but you can find each of the full recordings on our website at ttf.org. With that, here's today's conversation. Welcome to each of you joining us for today's conversation with Ard Louie and Tremper Longman on faith in an empirical world. I'm Richard Miles, board chairman of the Trinity Forum, as well as co-founder of the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, where we teach science through the lens of invention. We live in an era where science and faith are widely believed to be in conflict. A spreading materialism asserts, even assumes, that only empirical knowledge is reliable and denigrates ways of understanding reality beyond the quantitative. Others believe that the realms of science and religion are entirely separate, each with interesting things to say, but nothing to say to each other. But is that in fact the case? And in this conversation, we'll explore a different hypothesis, the idea that science and faith actually do have things to say to each other and to us in enabling us to better understand ourselves, our minds, our world, and its originator and designer and that contemplating the complexity of our cosmos and the mystery of our self and soul may cultivate a new sense of wonder, awe, and even worship, and as Deb said, a doxology amidst discovery. Our two guests today, Ard Louie and Tremper Longman, have written and lectured extensively on this very hypothesis, and it is an honor for me to moderate what I believe will be a very fruitful discussion. Dr. Ard Louie serves as a professor of theoretical physics at the University of Oxford, where he leads an interdisciplinary research group studying problems on the border between chemistry, physics, and biology. He's also director of graduate studies in theoretical physics. He has written for the Biologos Foundation, where he also sits on the board of directors. Prior to his post at Oxford, he taught theoretical chemistry at Cambridge University where he was also Director of Studies in Natural Sciences at Hughes Hall. Dr. Louis was born in the Netherlands, was raised in Gabon, and received his first degree from the University of Utrecht and his PhD in Theoretical Physics from Cornell University. Dr. Dr. Tremper Longman serves as Distinguished Scholar and Professor Emeritus of Biblical Studies at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. He has written over 30 books, including most recently, Revelation in the Light of the Old Testament. He also has served on the advisory council of both Biologos and the Science for Seminaries program of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and is the author of Confronting Old Testament Controversies, Pressing Questions about Evolution, Sexuality, Violence, and History. Ard and Tremper, welcome. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Look forward to chatting with you. Yeah. So I thought maybe we'd start with the really easy questions here. Let's talk about the, the, the sort of the difference between theological versus empirical knowledge. 
And, and as I said, we live in a time where it is often only empirical knowledge that is widely considered reliable or authoritative. Moral or spiritual knowledge is at best considered to be a constructed rather than discovered truth. In your respective views, what is the reliability of theological versus empirical knowledge, the things that can't be measured versus the things that can? And if you could, each give us a few practical examples of how the two worlds both interpret the truth. Tramper, why don't we start with you? Sure, and thanks uh, for that softball to start. <laughs> and uh, of course, it's a it's a very complex question, but I'll lay out what I think are some basic ideas about it, and and give uh, at least one example. And I'd start as I contemplate that question. I would start with the long time teaching from the Christian tradition that God has given us two books, right? He's given us scripture and he's given us nature and he speaks to us through both. He reveals himself to us through both. And perhaps oversimplifying, I might start by saying theology focuses on scripture and science focuses on nature, which would lead to, I think, a first important point, which is if that is true, then uh, when science and uh, theology or the Bible are both interpreted correctly, then there's not going to be a conflict there. And therefore, we shouldn't, as Christians at least, fear science. But of course, it's the issue of proper interpretation that comes to the fore for both science and theology. And, and we'll probably drill down on that a little bit later as well. It does strike me that uh, scientific knowledge and theological knowledge are acquired in different ways, at least in degree. Scientific knowledge is acquired through experimentation, observation, and reason in the main. And, and one of the implications of that, though, is that uh, scientific knowledge is constrained to a certain arena, uh, what can be demonstrated, say, in the lab or perhaps by math. Theological knowledge, which focuses on scripture, therefore primarily focuses on revelation. God reveals himself in Christ and the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Scripture is perhaps the clearest self-disclosure of the triune God, which is what the church typically means when we call it canon. So let me give a quick example then in the matter of origins. Um, scientific knowledge is acquired through the study of the fossil records, say, and genetic evidence. And over the years has accumulated strong support for the theory of evolution and common descent. Uh, the reliability of the knowledge in science seems to be built on accumulated evidence. The theological claim derived from scripture is that God created everything. And from a New Testament perspective, the Christian contention is that the triune God created everything. And that's not supported by material evidence. Uh, true, you know, Psalm 19, Romans 1, talks about the glory of God, uh, that the heavens reveal the glory of God. And that is true, that you can derive a sense of awe and transcendence from 
from creation, but that doesn't specifically support the biblical contention that it's Yahweh or the triune God who created everything. And that's why those of us who believe this revelation is reliable find it hard to convince, say, a materialist, because the latter's perspective is constrained or limited by what he or she requires for evidence. As a quick aside, I, I think that's why um, that's why some people are attracted to sort of a God of the gaps kind of uh, approach. That is, well, science can't explain this or that, therefore that can only be explained by the possibility that God is there. The problem with that kind of argument is that it's a very weak read as science continues to develop. Uh, let me just cite here too Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, uh, where it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we don't see. By faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So I would say faith is absolutely not contrary to reason, but it's not gained through reason or scientific endeavor. Faith, though, helps me make sense of my world. It brings coherence and purpose to life. It can transform life. It also provides a basis, I would argue, that I don't think the materialist position can uh, a basis for morality, justice, equality that's centered in the what we learned from biblical revelation that every human being is created in the image of God. Just one last quick point, uh, and that is, um, again, we can't prove the existence of God from nature, but there are scientific observations, I would suggest, that are worthy of contemplation. Um, one that's particularly striking to me is this idea of fine-tuning, that, uh, that the cosmos is fine-tuned so that the laws of nature can allow life to develop, or, or even perhaps the recognition that the universe has a beginning, which is a scientific observation, as I understand it, only since the mid-20th century. Thank you, Tramper. Art, I'm sure you have some thoughts about the reliability of uh, theological versus empirical knowledge. Yeah, well, thanks so much. I mean, thanks, Trevor, for your very interesting points, which, which I completely agree. I might take the question a step back and say, I often get asked that question. And I think what's really underlying it is something like this. So here I have in my hand my phone. It has more power than the computers that were used to put the first people on the moon. So the, the speed of technological advance that we've experienced even in our own lifetimes has been extraordinary. You think about medicine, the way it's transformed our health, uh, extraordinary, it's absolutely amazing. So you see the incredible way that science brings progress. And it's very natural to feel that somehow we ought to use that same method to also understand other questions of life. But I put it to you that nobody can actually live that way because most of the truly important questions of life are not amenable to empirical investigation. I'll give you one very simple example. So let's say I want to answer a question about the value of human beings. Do human beings, for example, have intrinsic value? Well, certainly in our Western societies, this, this is an incredibly important shared value that um, people of a wide range of different religious beliefs all agree upon. And 
we, we might even say it's really important that we all agree that human beings have some intrinsic value. But how would I, you know, how would I measure your value in an empirical way? Well, not to be too facetious, but you know, if I was a psychologist, I'd measure how smart you are, or a physiologist, maybe how big your brain is. If I was a chemist, I'd measure your value by looking, you know, at the the value of the elements in your body. Well, somebody with gold fillings is clearly not worth more than somebody without gold fillings. That's kind of silly. Maybe an anthropologist, I would measure how the you know you're viewed by your community. Or if I'm an economist, I'd measure what your productive output is. And sometimes I worry that our overlords do value us primarily that way. But clearly, as I'm giving you these these kind of ways of empirically measuring what the value of a human being is, they're silly, they're nonsensical. And the reason for that is that, that there is no empirical way of measuring the value of human being. Even more so, if you were to try to do so, I think it's dangerous. And I, I think most reasonable people would agree with that. Therefore, we have other um, arguments for coming to the conclusion that human beings have intrinsic value, that, you, that maybe that can be expressed in the language of human rights or in other ways. Now, Christians would say that comes from the fact that we are created and loved by God. And that it's really important that our value is not related to our status in society or our race or our wealth or any other characteristic, but we have intrinsic value that comes from God. And, you know, Western society has basically picked up that idea has deeply Christian roots and codified it in various ways. But the point I'm making to you is that empirical knowledge can't answer that question, even though I'm very strongly convinced that it is true. So... I, th I think that most of the truly important things in our lives are governed by these kinds of non-empirical truths. So therefore the idea that somehow these should be in conflict is, is slightly odd because clearly empirical uh, science is not gonna give us these really important, also these really important questions, questions of morality, questions of um, how should I live? And yet we all have ideas about them. I think what might be playing in the background is obviously it's harder to um, uh, agree in society on these kinds of questions. And I think that's true. And that's a, an issue that we need to think through. But just because something is harder to adjudicate on doesn't mean that it's less valuable. And that doesn't mean that I don't think the science is not important. I think science is probably the greatest invention that human beings have ever made. I think it's unbelievably exciting. I, I pinch myself that I get paid money to think about science and people, it's not your money probably for, for, the, for all the Brits, it's your tax money primarily. So thank you very much. And it pays me to think about science because I think science brings us great advances, advances our, our, our lives in all kinds of incredible ways. But science and no conceivable advance of science is gonna answer these ultimate questions. Thank you, Art. Uh Let's move on and talk about the relationship between empiricism and faith. And specifically, I'd like your thoughts and some of our core assumptions about that relationship between empiricism and faith, between science and religion. Um, as I noticed earlier, or earlier, each have interesting things to say, but do they have anything to say to each other? Are, are scientists, in fact, predominantly secular and antagonistic to faith? Or is that a false impression driven, driven by celebrity atheists? Are most Christians distrustful of science, or is this a mistaken caricature driven by celebrity pastors? Um, Ard, I know you've written, you've talked about several zombie myths, as you term them, with regards to the supposed battle between faith and science. Could you elaborate a little bit about what those myths are? 
So one of the myths is the one that you brought up very helpfully, which is this myth that somehow scientists are not religious or against religion. So not too long ago, you had Elaine Howard Eklund on your um, uh, um, podcast. That's, uh, and she has done the, the largest empirical studies of what scientists believe across, I think, eight different countries. And what it more or less shows is that scientists, um, or many scientists have a faith. Actually, a very small minority of scientists are the kind of Dawkinsian hardcore atheists. Um, and so this is not, a, not a, an accurate depiction of what scientists are like today. Of course, historically, scientists have often been people of deep faith. You can think of people like Newton, who's somebody of deep faith, perhaps of unconventional theology, but nevertheless, somebody for whom um, faith played a very important role. Here in Oxford, one of our greats is Sir Robert Boyle from Boyle's Law, the father of physical chemistry, who was deeply, profoundly religious, much more so than the people, than the, um, the people in, in his kind of social stat- class at the time. Um, think of Maxwell, think of many, many other great greats who were um, Christians of deep faith in the past. So empirically, it's not true that scientists don't believe in God. And I think it's for the obvious reasons that we need our answers to ultimate questions to come from somewhere. And Christian faith offers very deep and profound answers to that. The other question you asked is how do, you know, empiricism and say theological knowledge interact with each other? Well, they clearly do in the sense that um, if I, um, so my, our scientific understanding helps clarify questions. It helps us understand perhaps where you might've misunderstood questions. For example, um, historical knowledge helps us understand the, the background of the Bible, which helps understand the Bible better, for example. In the same way, actually, interestingly, the Bible has played an incredibly important role in the emergence of modern science. So we're used to this now, but the idea that you should be able to study the world and do a repeatable experiment and get the same results. So if I do an experiment here in Oxford and I get a certain result, and somebody in Cambridge, they say they're smart, should get the same result in the same conditions, the kind of idea of uniformity. Well, that's not at all obvious to most people in history for whom the world feels capricious and not predictable. And historians have shown that theological reflections on the faithfulness of God, of a God behind this world, who sustains this world, made them think perhaps we would have something uniformity. We'd have some kind of laws of nature that we could understand. If there's a lawgiver, there might be laws that we could therefore understand. And that's a, a big foundation of modern empiricism, modern science comes from those kind of theological roots. It's now so baked in that nobody questions those roots anymore or even wonders where they came from, but they are profoundly theological. Tramper, how about from the other side? Uh, you know, is it is it true or is it, as I said, a caricature that Christians, and, and in this case, I'm, I'm talking about the American church. I know maybe most of your experience with the American church are American Christians profoundly suspicious or antagonistic to scientists and to the scientific process. Well, uh, Richard, it's always dangerous to overgeneralize, um, but, and there's a lot of fragmentation and polarization here in the United States. You mentioned, is it, uh, is it just connected to celebrity pastors? Celebrity pastors, there's some wonderful ones and some that encourage a kind of distrust of science and they have influence on lay people who listen to them. But I mean, from my perspective, which is limited, of course, the good news is that, you know, through the work of Biologos and other organizations, 
the message is getting out there that you can affirm both, you know, consensus science and and theology that they're they're not in conflict. And also that program I was involved with at uh, AAAS, the Science for Seminaries program, is trying to uh, is has been working through seminary education. Not to force people or seminaries to believe certain scientific things, but at least to become aware of really good science, not kind of pseudoscience that's out there. So I guess maybe um, I'm not a, as opti- not as positive as our was in terms of his assessment of the scientific community, which, by the way, hanging out with scientists for the past decade or so, really opened my eyes to what Ard was talking about. But there's reason for optimism, yeah. I wanted to talk a bit about miracles. How are we to make sense of miracles? And for many scientists, a belief in miracles is a red line they simply uh, aren't gonna cross. The miracles seem to stand outside our understanding of how the natural world works. They seem to be this barrier to believing in, in the scriptures, to the, to the Bible, or, or really any metaphysical understanding of the world. Is it possible to be grounded in science and yet still accept the miracles in, for instance, the Bible? Um, Trumper, why don't we ask, actually uh, start with you, if you could maybe help us understand, first of all, miracles from a theological standpoint, mm-hmm. what is their purpose and are all miracles uh, the same? Yeah, so um, happy to answer that, and also happy to have uh, our deal with the scientific perspective on that. So as I read the Bible and I look at how God acts in space and time in history, I I think in terms of three categories. Of course, that's a modern imposition on it. The important point will be that God is active in each of these, but in matters of what we call providence, God is involved and God is as involved in providential acts as he is in miraculous acts. I think that's a really important point to underline. And again, getting back to the question of evolution, I think that's one thing that worries people that there isn't a kind of miraculous origin to uh, human beings. So, and. And so God sustains regular patterns of the natural world. Before I leave providence per se, I also want to draw attention to the book of Esther, which is not about sort of the regular laws of nature, but it's about redemption. I mean, Esther's the story of the redemption of the Jews during the Persian period from a horrible possible annihilation. And it's a very interesting story of rescue and God is not mentioned explicitly once, but the story is told in such a way that there's so many uh, interesting, ironic and unexpected reversals that you can't help but think God's involved. And perhaps we should call this, and this is my second category, extraordinary providence. What in an article that Ard wrote, he refers to as miracle ones. They're basically uh, timing issues that, yeah, they result from secondary causes, but but at the right moment, say, whether it's uh, the stopping of the Jordan River in Joshua chapter three, or even the crossing of the sea at the Exodus where God uses a wind to do it. Um, and then there are, um, then there are uh, 
miracles per se that can't be explained by secondary causes. Uh, just to mention one kind of minor one in a sense, uh, the floating ax head, when some workman loses his iron ax in the waters, um, the prophet Elisha prays and the ax head floats. Uh, or of course, the bigger miracles like the virgin birth or the resurrection. Um, so now I'll say that the purpose of miracles is not to simply titillate or draw attention to itself. Uh, miracles are sort of bolstering redemptive acts and making it very clear that uh, God is involved in these acts and drawing attention to um, the act itself. I mean, even the floating act said, if you read it in its Old Testament context, is not kind of an arbitrary thing to titillate, but it's actually an anti-Baal polemic. Baal was the god of the waters. And, and through this miracle, uh, Yahweh has demonstrated, first of all, that the prophet has, um, uh, prophet, uh, you know, Yahweh is with the prophet and that the prophet, um, and that Yahweh is the one who's in control of the waters, not Baal himself. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Ard for some further comments. Well, thanks, Trumper, very much for that. Yeah, so as I think um, the article I wrote on this a while back was put on um, or sent to the, um, to the viewers. And maybe the one thing I'd add to this from a scientific point of view is in order to understand miracles, you've got to first understand what science is. And as a Christian, the way I think about science is science is studying the ordinary ways that God sustains the universe. So we believe that God, it's very important that we don't think of God in a kind of deistic way. And I, I worry sometimes that modern Christians have turned God into kind of deistic. There's a world that goes along and every so often God pokes into it and does something. And we'll say God was present in the service today, by which we, um, if, it's, if, if you interpret that badly, it means that somehow, you know, he wasn't present at other times which is, a, 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 I think what we mean is we particularly experience this presence or felt this presence, but God is always present. And so it's, you know, if we think that God sustains the world, that means that if God were to stop sustaining the world, it's not like it would slowly grind to a halt and not work anymore. It would simply stop existing. It would go on. So once you think about the world that way, then the question is, what is science? Well, science is studying these regular ways that God sustains the universe. And we read all about them in scripture and um, scripture often bounces back and forth between a language that is God doing it and the language is the nature doing it because these things are very closely linked to each other. So in my laboratory, if I'm studying something, if a student comes to me and says, you know, a miracle happens, I, I would be surprised because I think God does miracles as Trimper did said for redemptive purposes. And that could be true, but I'd be surprised. I wouldn't publish it because, you know, you, you can't control the mind of God. Um, I don't expect there to be miracles in my lab on theological grounds, not on scientific grounds. So when my scientific colleagues who are not Christians um, worry about miracles, they're, they're actually, that's a perfectly valid worry, but actually it, it works a little bit like this. In order to properly assess whether miracles are possible or not, you've got to first ask the question whether there is a God or is no God. Those are two options you have. If there is no God, well, the miracles are obviously very unlikely. If there is a God, 
why on earth would there not be miracles? If there is a God who sustains the world as we believe it does, it'd be very surprising if God couldn't occasionally sustain the world in a different way. So really the question about miracles is a proxy for the question about whether you believe in God or not. Science has nothing to say about miracles. A theological view of the world is actually, it's the other way around. So the theological view of the world that the world is regular and um, intelligible comes from theological grounds. And that's why we can do science. Um, so really the question, if somebody asks you the question, how, how could you believe in, if someone asks me the question, how can you believe in God and believe in miracles? I say, well, actually, the minute I believe in God, a God who's, sustained, who's a powerful God, the God who's a source of all being, it's not at all surprising that something like miracles happen. What's maybe more surprising is that the miracles are relatively rare. Mm. My friend Simon Conway Morris, who's a very famous paleontologist in Cambridge, pointed this out to me one day. He said, who, when he came to faith, he said, you know, he read the New Testament and there's obviously lots of miracles happening, but why weren't there more? <laughs> um, that's really the question that I think uh, you know, scientists should be asking. Thank you, Art. Uh, you've, Art, you've eloquently described your, your personal journey to faith, starting with being a missionary kid in Gabon. Then as you began your studies in the Netherlands, uh, you were warned by some of your Christian friends not to study too much science. And their fear was that as your understanding of the world went up, there would be less room for God. Can you, tell, can you just briefly tell us how you reconcile that fear expressed by your friends with your decision to carry on with your uh, scientific studies? Well, that's, that's an interesting fear. And I've actually encountered it um, many times in other people as well, that they've had that fear. Um, interestingly, I, they, they expressed that to me, but I didn't sense that fear at all because the more I studied about science, the more amazing I thought it was. And to me, it pointed me towards God. So although that was a, a, a not uncommon um, fear, it actually is rather sadly, I've quite often given talks, particularly in the in the US, where students of a later come up to me and said, you know, I want to study science, but my church tells me be careful about it. Um, and I tell them, you know, listen to your church, but not on this particular issue. <laughs> um, and um, so actually, you know, I'll tell you another story here in Oxford, we have a fairly, um, we, I run a, a a course with some kind of friends of mine called Developing Christian Mind, where we, we give lectures to um, graduate students to help them think Christianly about their subjects. And interestingly, the science, it's the sciences, we have got tons of speakers, and I've got to kind of, you know, try to balance them off so they each get their turn. It's in the humanities and social sciences where you see a lot fewer, it's much, much harder for us to find academics who speak. And when we, when we have a talk on science and faith, we're not really worried about the science undermining our faith. We talk about lots of other questions. That's not really something that comes up or something that we worry about. So interesting, I think it is true that there are corrosive aspects to the academic world that, that are maybe dangerous to your faith. It's not the science itself, it's the uh, accoutrements around it that can be um, uh, unhelpful for faith. And interestingly, I think those, those it's harder often in the humanities or in the social sciences. Those are fields that are often more antagonistic to faith. And if somebody tells to me, I want to go study social sciences, I might be, I always tell them for all, you know, definitely go ahead. But here's some things you should think about before you do so that you don't get caught up in what are sometimes some anti-Christian um, attitudes there. In the sciences, by and large, that I think it's the other way around. Your faith often gets strengthened by what you, uh, what you learn. Interesting. Um, Tremper, you've, you've encountered varied reactions to your arguments regarding how scientific inquiry can inform and even improve our theological understanding of the world. 
What has that journey been, that personal journey been like for you? And has anything changed since you began? First of all, I'd, I'd underline what Ard said about the humanities, at least, and the social sciences, that that there'll be challenges to a person's faith if they go into, you know, academic career in humanities or even biblical studies. So um, on the other hand, it's been, um, well, I think it hasn't been really emotionally difficult because I've always been supported by my home base, so to speak. So I was teaching at Westmont College when I started talking about science and faith issues. And that was a very friendly and supportive place to to be, to talk honestly about those kind of topics. But there was a lot of uh, very harsh kind of rhetoric directed at me. Um, but the one thing I want people to understand, and I, if I'm talking about it publicly, I want people, I always start by affirming my high regard for scripture, that uh, scripture is God's word. And so it's true in everything it intends to teach us. And so I, 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 I want to tell them that because that's authentically where I'm coming from. And I've found that as I do that, people are more open to listening. And they may not eventually agree with me. And so I'm not trying to turn people into evolutionary creationists. I'm trying to convince people that you can be a uh, Bible-loving Christian and, and be an evolutionary creationist, that it's not a litmus test of faith or anything like that. So now we turn to arguably the best part of these online conversations, and that is questions from you, the audience. So our first question uh, here is from Michael Lundy, uh, and he writes, <clears throat> David Alcald warns that, any, that many empirical efforts to include God in a coherent cosmology fall victim to ground rules set by atheistic presuppositions, leaving us with an ever-shrinking God of the gaps. What are your perspectives on this? Actually, the um, one of the great popular. I mean, the, the the word "God of the Gaps" has been used by theologians for a long time. Bonhoeffer uses it. Actually, one of our great Oxford heroes, Charles Coulson, who was the first professor of theoretical chemistry, theoretical chemistry here, a really great one of the world's greatest chemists, um, writes about this quite extensively in the 1960s. He he kind of popularized again the word "God of the Gaps," and he basically says, you know, um, it's really important that we don't put a fence somehow where we say God is on one side and you know science is on the other side. Either God is in it all or God is in none of it. And so it's true that um, Christians are often tempted by a kind of God of the gaps. And atheists also create a kind of God of the gaps. Often when they try to look for evidence for God, they'll say, well, please give me evidence from God. Show me something that I can't explain by science, as if that would be um, where you would find God. And I often say that's not really the kind of God that I'm believing in. I'm not believing in a God who kind of pokes into the world and like does little tricks here and there. I believe a God who's behind the whole shebang, um, the God for whom and by whom we exist. And that's a very different kind of God, but that is the God of the Bible. Our next question is from an anonymous viewer. What are simple ways for laymen to experience the overlap of science and faith and begin to explore that connection? Well, um, again, I, I'm 
promoting happily our sponsor, BioLogos. I think one place to go is the BioLogos web page, uh, which I was just recently visiting myself to uh, look over the resource. I hadn't been there in a while, and I found it a, a wealth of, of information. Uh, now, if you want a source that has different perspectives on controversial issues, uh, there there's a Dictionary of Christianity and Science, which I co-edited for Zondervan, which has, besides descriptive articles, it also has what we call advocacy articles, which will, uh, and, and representatives from what we saw as the four main kind of evangelical Christian perspectives on uh, science and faith, which is young earth creationists, reasons to believe kind of a concordism, a intelligent design, and evolutionary creationists. Another good way of starting is by just reading biographies or autobiographies of Christians who are scientists. So a classic, a great classic is The Language of God by Francis Collins. Mm -hmm. there's, other, there's lots of good books. Deb Horsma, who was the, um, introduced me, has a few really good books, not biographical, but just very good, easy to read books. My other point would be, um, you know, if we look in the Psalms, we see many examples of the writer looking up at the stars and saying, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? And all that our telescopes and our microscopes have done is enhance that feeling. So another way that you can interact with science and faith is actually just going out and looking at the world. And if you have the chance to look through a microscope or through a telescope, then do it. And just remember when you're looking at it, this is not a scary thing. This is actually showing you something even more about the greatness and grandness of God. And, and so do it and worship. That I think is my number one advice to engaging with science and faith is look at the science and remember what this tells us about our greatness of God and use it as a source of worship. That's a really great way to start. Our next question is from David Groysel. Do the social sciences reveal truths about human life that can answer any of the big questions? For example, what is the good life? I'm in the humanities and arts <laughs> and the sciences, but uh, but yeah, I do think so. I think that um, as sociologists study societies and see what leads to flourishing, even apart from kind of a Christian framework that they can derive interesting insights. I mean, I'm kind of an expert on wisdom literature. And, uh, and so I often refer to the concept of emotional intelligence, which isn't just sociology, but it's very similar to say, and, and the thesis is emotional intelligence leads to uh, flourishing and success in life on a kind of a practical level. And, uh, and then gives the data for that. And so that kind of supports the Bible's view of wisdom on one level, the practical level. That doesn't exhaust the meaning of wisdom in the Old Testament. Two more questions from anonymous viewers. I'll sort of uh, try to roll them into one. Do you think science tries to over-explain miracles rather than just accepting it as a miracle? And the related question is, do you think science such as medicine is a way modern day miracles occur. Sometimes people talk about miracles, you know, so a very common sense is, you know, the birth of a child is a miracle, right? Even though we might say that, that every step of that is medically understood. And I don't 
tell people not to use that language because I think it is still telling us something about the goodness of God and the um, graciousness of God that we experience in those things, even in a normal, ordinary, well, as ordinary as birth ever, there's nothing thing as an ordinary birth, birth, but in a birth that works without medical intervention, for example. You know, on the other hand, um, you know, God can obviously use the, the, the wisdom of doctors. And I think God has given us that. That's a gift from God to us as humanity is the wisdom and knowledge of doctors. And we should be thankful for that and remember where, where it came from. Um, and I think that one of the problems with the word miracle is that I think it sometimes gets overused in Christian circles. And as Tremper pointed out, that's, that you know, there's all, lots of ways that God works in the world, including way, ways that are providential. And we don't necessarily think of them as, as these kind of fancy miracles. And, it's, and the reason I say it's overused is because we kind of, people kind of, what they mean is that's when we see God is the miracle. But actually, the Bible has a seeing God all over the place, not just in, in these kind of um, miraculous acts. Thank you, Tremper and Ard. All great answers. And we have lots more questions. I wish we could get to all of them. But unfortunately, we are drawing to a close. So as promised, to conclude this great discussion between Ard and Tremper, I'm going to give them the last word. Why don't we start with you, Ard? Well, I wanted to, as a, my last word, just read from one of my favorite passages of Scripture, which is Colossians chapter 1. And um, from verse 15, so this is a, a section on the supremacy of Christ. And it says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So I want you to take something away I want you to walk out, if you can, and into nature today or tomorrow and look at the beauty that you see. And just remember that this is something that was both created by God and sustained by him. So God has made it and sustains it. And I hope that sense of the grandeur of God who not only made but actually cares about every detail of our natural world will bring you to worship of God. Thank you, Art. That's great. Tremper? I'll end simply by reiterating what I think is an important idea in this science-faith interaction. John Paul II had a wonderful statement that always kind of resonates in the back of my mind on these issues when he said, science can purify our religion. Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. How that works out is a matter of discussion, but I think it's a really nice way of thinking about the relationship between science and faith. We hope you enjoy this Discovery and Doxology series and that it helps to inspire great conversations for you too.